If you have your Bible, Psalm 27 is where we're going to be at this morning as we continue in our series, the Summer of the Psalms, uh, Psalm 27. Uh, got a lot of work to do, so welcome if you're new here, but we're going to just dive in. As you're turning there... Um, A few months ago, at the very beginning of this series, Psalm 1, I talked about whatever you do, you are doing it in pursuit of your joy, in pursuit of your happiness. And uh, that's not a bad thing. That's what what it means to be human, is to pursue our happiness. The problem is, in the brokenness of this world, in our hearts and our minds, uh, we we are constantly going off after things that we think will bring us happiness. And sometimes we arrive in those places and get that thing, or that person, or that promotion or that job, whatever it is, and we find in the end, it doesn't satisfy our soul. But that doesn't stop us from uh, from the hamster wheel. We just keep rolling, keep rolling. And, and Jesus is going to come along and he says, he's going to say, it's not your desire or your the, the desire in you, it's the misplacement of that that's the problem. So in John chapter 1, when... Um, John the Baptist has gathered his disciples and he sees Jesus one day and he says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And John chapter 1 says, in that moment, two of John's disciples who had left everything in pursuit of their happiness to follow and be disciples of John get up and they begin to start following Jesus. And one of them's Andrew, the brother of Peter. We don't know the name of the other guy, but in John 1, 38, Jesus turns to these guys who just start following him and he says this, what are you seeking? It could be translated, what do you want? What do you desire? He doesn't ask these guys, what do you know? He says, what do you desire? What, what's your heart's desire? It's, it's a good question because Jesus, Jesus has made us. He's made us a whole being. Uh, sometimes in some circles, we, we only emphasize the, the intellect. And in others, it's only the heart. But, but Jesus wants to come to us as whole people. What do you want? What do you desire? Uh, it reminds me of in, in James K. A. Smith's, James K. A. Smith's book, "You Are What You Love." He tells the story of the the movie from 1979, a Russian movie called "Stalker." Uh, and Andrei Tarkovsky is is the director, and, and in this movie, uh, it's kind of a, a dark, dystopian, apocalyptic uh, future kind of book. But but there's this there's these three men on a journey. One one stalker, he's the guide. I don't know why he's called that, but the other one is. Prof- Professor and writer, and, and they're going to this place called the zone. And in the middle of the zone, uh, Stalker tells them there's this room, and in the and in this room, you get what you most want. And so Professor says, well, I, I want to find uh, scientific discovery, so I, I want to go to this room. And the writer says, I want to find some uh, inspiration for my art. And so he, they, they begin this journey, and, and they go in. And before they get to the room, they stop in the room before the room. And in fact, I got a picture of it here right before. And, and they pause before they go into this room because something starts to dawn on them kind of a, an epiphany, kind of almost a, a, a scary moment. Imagine if you could go to the place and your deepest desire would be granted to you, whatever it is. And, and they ask the question to soccer. They say, well, well what, if we, what if we think it's something, but it's something else? And he says, well, the room will, will, will give you what you really want. And, and they pause. They pause because they wonder, man, do I even really know myself and they, they, they become uh, kind of afraid to go into the room. Now, now, 
If you're a Christian, if you're a follower of Christ, and you've done that for a while, and I was to ask you what's your deepest desire, you probably know the right answer, right? Like that, the Sunday school answer, right? Where the Sunday school teacher says, hey kids, what's, what's small and furry and has a bushy tail and climbs a tree and eats nuts and seeds? And the kid answer, raises, says, well, uh, I think you're talking about a squirrel, but this is Sunday school, so it must be Jesus. <laughs> like we, we know what it should be. We, we know it should be in the room. But the question for you and for me is, would you go into the room? Would you go into the room? Um, when, uh, when we look at Psalm 27, one of the things that we realize or, or maybe could realize is sometimes uh, when it comes to our relationship with God, we want too little or we ask for too little. Like our, our relationship w- with God and, and oftentimes is, is coming to him, asking of him things to, to give us. And, and in fact, he, he gives us that permission. Uh, Jesus teaches us in, in the, sur- uh, the Lord's Prayer, uh, give us this day our daily bread. So that's not wrong, but maybe it's too little. Because even in the Lord's Prayer, Jesus first has a start with, with spending some time lifting our, our eyes and soaking in who God is, Father in heaven, who is holy, who has a kingdom. And after you spend some time in that, then he says, then you can come and ask for things from me. You can have petition. But, but I think sometimes we might want, want too little or ask too little of God when we only see God as useful in our lives. Religion, no matter what it is, sees God or the gods or, or, or the force or whatever it is as useful. And so whatever the prescription is, what do I have to do? What prayers do I have to pray? What sacrifices do I have to make? What do I have to do and not do so that God can be useful in my life? And so uh, we often, even in our prayer life, think about what prayers you prayed this week. Were they mostly asking God to be useful and if so, that's not wrong. <laughs> like, like he invites us as a good father. He, he is the only father in the history of fathers that is okay with his kids badgering him all the time. That, that's okay. But, but I want, and David wants more for you in your relationship with God and his relationship with, with God. See, th- there is one time where we really, 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 really want God to be useful when we hit the trials and the sufferings and the sicknesses of life, that in that moment, our prayers are almost always, Lord, deliver me, Lord, heal me, Lord, Lord, get me out of this circumstance, get me out of this trial. Uh, but, but what's going to be surprising in this moment, though, though David faces all of that and more, this is not what he asked for. He doesn't ask for God to be useful. He asks for something that he knows he needs most, that you and I need most. So if you have your Bible, Psalm 27 is where we're going to be at this morning. Psalm 27, and we'll kind of walk our way through it here. Uh, but, but here's how David starts this psalm. It's a psalm of David. He says, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Now, here's the thing about David's life. When you study his life, he he has higher highs and lower lows than all of us. Like, you think you're stressful, you're trying to close the deal, or you've got something going on in a relationship or health. Like, those are stressful. But David, I guarantee, had it, it, it more. Like, uh, you might think you have a lot of control, but you're, you're not king. 
<laughs> like you can't send the army out and, and, and take these people out and, and make these national decisions. You, you, you might think you're king, but if you are, you're king of your tiny little sad kingdom. Like you're just not, right? But David was. And his life is full of high highs and low lows. So as a young boy, he was uh, watching the flocks of God's people and sometimes lions and bears would come and he would have to defend the, 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 the flock and he would have to kill lions and bears. I've never had that kind of stress in my life, right? Like that, that's not a challenge that I've faced, but that's him as a young boy. And then he gets anointed as king as a young man, but he's got to wait decades to kind of assume what was already his. And one day the, the, the terrifying Philistines have gathered and they've sent out Goliath, this giant, and everyone else is shaking in their knees. And, and he comes up and he sees this guy blaspheming God. And he says, who is this that defies the armies of the living God? And we know the story. He goes up and slings the stone. He kills Goliath, cuts off his giant head, and, and holds it up for all to see. Like, I, I haven't had that kind of stress in my life. <laughs> and you haven't either. He, he'll go on to, to, to lead the, the, the battlefield. Even though Saul is still in control, he, he'll lead the army against the Philistine time and time and again so that the people will, will, will sing their praise. And this is hand-to-hand combat. People dying all over, left and right. And they'll sing his praises. They'll say, Saul has killed his thousands and David his ten thousands. And I'm like, I, I just, no. I mean, I know some of, some of you are military, some of you have background, and I get all that. But, but, but David was a whole new level. And, and uh, Saul himself it tries to kill him on several occasions. Uh, he, he will throw his spear at him as he's playing the harp just to kind of chill him out a little bit and throws the spear, spear and David has to flee for his life and, and Saul will send out armies to, for one purpose, to kill David. And he's hiding in caves and he's moments away uh, in several points in his life where his life could be taken from him. Later on, his, not just nationally, but personally, his, his life is a mess. I mean, he, he belongs on, I don't even know if this is a show anymore, Jerry Springer, but you know what I'm saying. Like, his, his uh, family's a mess, right? Like, one, one of his sons rapes one of his half-sisters, a, a daughter, and, and the other brother, uh, so Amnon does that, and the other brother, Absalom, takes revenge and murders the son and then leads a national revolt, kicks David out of the palace. David runs for his life again, and armies again are after him. So, so here's what David knows. He knows that his life is full of trials. And he could spend every day of his life just asking God to be useful. I, I need you to get me out of this one again. I need you to get me out of this one again. But, but he knows that in this world, you will have troubles. And so he asks for something more. He asks what he needs most, what we need most. And, and so that's how he starts his song, of whom shall I be afraid? And then verse 2, when evildoers assail me. So I'm like, David, I know who you should be afraid of, the evildoers that are assailing you. That, that seems like a good option. That they assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes. It is they who stumble. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Like how, how is that even possible? Again, like we, we go through some stress. I get it. But like I've never had an army encamped against me and, and be able to say, I'm good. I'm at peace. It's all good. 
Like, he is saying this. This is, has he just, is he just crazy? Well, let's, let's see. He says, though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. The war rise against me, yet I will be confident. How? Why? Well, we see that in verse 4. He said, one thing, one thing I have asked of the Lord. One thing. What would you put in that blank? What have you put in that blank? What is the thing that you have constantly come back and asked of the Lord? He says, one thing I ask of the Lord. In spite of armies literally about to kill me, there's just one thing I want. One thing I need, Lord. He says, that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. (laughs) I would have asked for the armies to go away, Lord. (laughs) I would have asked, because he could do that, and it wouldn't even be wrong to ask for that, but he says one thing. So that I might dwell in the house of the Lord. Now, he's the king. He dwells in the palace. So he's not talking about what I want, God, is an endless church service. Like, I just want to be in church. Like, that's not what he's saying. What he's saying is that he wants to have an experience of the presence of God, to see the glory of God. That when the glory of God shows up, it enlightens everything else and the heart is inflamed, passions are risen, confidence is restored, peace is restored. He says, this is what I need most. I need uh, the special manifest presence of God. So, So the Bible is clear that God is omnipresent meaning that there isn't a, a molecule in the universe that is outside the presence of God. So, so in that way, uh, God is here. God is always here. He will always be everywhere at all times uh, completely. And yet the Bible will speak often of the special or manifest presence of God. Uh, th- this kind of revealing back, this pulling back of the curtain where the glory of God is behold and, and everything changes in that moment. Confidence is restored in that moment. Hope is restored. Because honestly, if you get a, if David, even though the enemies are surrounding him, if he can just have a glimpse of the God who speaks the universe into existence, if he can have a glimpse of a God who is sovereign over everything in the world in that moment, how could he fear? How could he fear? Because he knows God's got him. So he's asking to have the special manifest presence of God. We'll we'll talk about that. That's what what you and I need most. Above all else, we need the presence of God in our lives. He says, I want to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord to inquire in his temple. He doesn't want to see God merely as useful. He wants to see God as beautiful, And in seeing God as beautiful, he says that changes everything. Uh, Some Puritans can help us out in understanding this. I'll put it on a screen because it's it's kind of a long quote. And the words are a bit archaic for us. But yet, uh, I want you to just ponder what John Owen uh, from a couple hundred years ago says about this. He says this, if we settle for mere speculations and mental notions about Christ as doctrine, we shall find no transforming power or efficacy communicated unto us thereby. So he's, he's saying, if your Christianity only consists of knowing the right things about God, that that will be an empty religion. There's no power in that. 
I mean, the Bible will say elsewhere, hey, guess what? You know who knows more about Jesus than you do? Satan. Like, just knowing things and equating that to spirituality, equating that to a kind of maturity, which we often do in the West, that, that if you know enough things, you're somehow mature in the faith. John Owen's going to come along and say, hey, there's no power in just knowing. It's, it's not less than knowing, but it is more than knowing. Okay, where am I at on the next part? <laughs> um, there's a but. Okay, let's go to the next part there. Is that? Okay, there we go. But... When under the conduct of spiritual light, that's special, manifest presence, our affections do cleave unto him with full purpose of heart. That means it's just driven deep into our hearts. It says, then our minds fill up with thoughts and delight in him. And, and if that is to happen, where our head and our heart and our whole experience is, is in the manifest presence of God, then change of character will proceed from him to purify us increase our holiness, strengthen our graces, and to fill us, listen to what he says, sometimes, sometimes with joy unspeakable and full of glory. So, so this is what David is saying, that, that what he needs most is a, an experience of the manifest presence of God because that's what changes us. That, that's what gets us through. That, that's what delivers us. Uh, Jonathan Edwards said, there's a difference between knowing honey is sweet and actually tasting honey, right? Like we could write papers about the sweetness of honey, but it, th- there's something that happens when it hits your tongue and the roof of your mouth. This is what David's getting at. You don't just believe the doctrine of God's love and wisdom. You experience a felt presence of his love. You experience his wisdom. God, you are in control. You're in control of the invading armies. You're in control of everything. And this is what he's getting at. So he wants God not to just be useful, but to be beautiful. This is what we need. We, we need to see and, and savor God. This is what our souls were made for. This is what we will be in forever and ever. Beauty is better than usefulness. You ever experienced this in your life? Like maybe you took a, a, a music appreciation course in college and it was useful to get the grade, but you didn't come to appreciate it really and see its beauty later. Well, for me, I, I've told the story. Uh, before I was a Christian, I had no use for school. School was not useful for me. I just wanted to, I think I had ADD, but that was before they gave everyone drugs for that. So I just sat in class all day like, ah, oh, when's recess coming? Oh, I got to get home so I can play hoops. And then every now and again, uh, the teacher would hand us a book and be like, you're going to read this book. And I'd just be like, I'm not reading that. And and there was no like uh, Wikipedia. There's no shortcuts. I was just like, well, I'm going to fail this class. And and so I just put in my bag and then timed for the test. And I made something up and never did well with that. and so I, I became a Christian after high school, and, and I, I knew God was calling me into the ministry, and then I knew I needed to go to school. And as, at first, it was just to be useful. I started doing well in school, and I started reading, and then I found that I actually enjoyed it. So that several years ago, I went to one of my best friends, he's an English teacher, and I was like, hey, all these books that I was supposed to read, can you tell me what they were? And I'm just going to start reading, and we'll talk about it. And so he's giving me Steinbeck and... Um, Who's the man in the sea, the fish guy? Uh, you know what I'm talking about. Uh, Ernest Hemingway, thank you. And uh, J.D. Salinger and Fahrenheit 451 and George Orwell. And, and I'm just reading these things, not because they were useful to me, but all of a sudden I was enjoying, I was delighting in these things. They didn't get me anything, but they got me 
beauty. They got me delight. This is what, 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 what we need in our relationship with the Lord. We, we need a, a felt experience of God's manifest presence in our lives. Now, here's the thing, though. You and I can't just turn that switch on and off. We don't have control over that. Yet we can position ourselves in ways that, that historically and biblically, when the manifest presence of God comes, we are under the faucet to, to receive his pouring out on ourselves. Does that make sense? Well, let, let's go on a little bit further in the, the text, and then we'll, we'll get real practical. He says, for he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. Now, this is interesting. He doesn't say he will keep me from the day of trouble. No, the the Bible's going to be clear. You live in a day, if you're not in a day of trouble right now, it's coming. You'd be like, oh, it came, it was last week, it was last month. Uh, Guess what? It's coming again. Like the day of trouble, the Bible's going to go over the top and just make sure you know the day of trouble is coming. We live in a Genesis 3 world. There's brokenness, there's sin. The day of trouble is coming in. And God could keep those things away from our lives. He could keep the sicknesses and the relational breakdown. He could keep all that. But, but that's not what David says. You will hide me in your shelter in the day of trouble. I will find a refuge in you when the day of trouble comes because he'll experience the manifest presence of God. Now, now how, do we, how do we position ourselves? What do we do when the day of trouble comes? Well, we kind of have three options. And, and the first one is to kind of freak out and just say, okay, it's a financial problem and just get running the numbers. It's a relational problem. I'm just going to try to fix that. It's a, it's a health problem. I'm going to go, go eat kale every day until this goes away. Whatever, we, we can scramble and try to get ourselves out of the day of trouble. But, but in that, is, is, there's no peace in that. There's no peace in that. The second one is we can come and, and ask of the Lord, okay, I'm in the day of trouble. Please take me out of the day of trouble. And there, that's... Again, we're invited to do that. Or we can say, in the day of trouble, Lord, what I need most is your manifest presence to meet me in that spot. And and so how do we become a people that are positioned well for the manifest presence of God? I want to get just real practical here. Uh, In in this passage, one one of the things we see uh, already in David is that, first of all, we, we must choose to trust wholeheartedly. Say, well, how how do you do that? Well, here's the deal. We're all going to trust someone or something in every circumstance or situation. This is just choosing. In this moment, I will choose, in spite of what I see, in spite of what what, what I'm experiencing, I will choose to trust in the Lord. And so we see David just doing that. The Lord is my stronghold. He's choosing God. He says, uh, yet I will be confident. In verse 13, he says, I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of leave. He's believing God. So if you want to, uh, I mean, Hebrews chapter 11 says this, without faith, it is impossible to please God. For whoever would draw near to God, that's draw near to the manifest presence of God, because again, God's everywhere. So he's talking about special presence. Whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. So, so in the moment, in the day of trouble, or even really right now, by the way, uh, n- now is the time, even if you don't have a day of trouble, to begin to position yourself for the pouring out of the presence of God. 
And so uh, he says, I'm going to choose faith. I'm going to choose to believe. This is what jazzes God. And then notice in, in Hebrews, it also said, for he rewards those who seek him. So secondly, we must choose to seek him continually. So this is what David is doing. In Psalm 105, verse 4, it says, seek the Lord and his strength. Seek his presence continually. I think I have these on the screen. Uh, that's number two. Seek his presence continually. So this is ongoing, um, just the, the Bible says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. So this is ordering our lives, ordering our days to, to position ourselves to seek God, seek God, seek God, seek God, and his presence will come. Again, number three, choose to praise him fervently. This, this is what, what David is saying. In, in verse four, he says, that I may dwell, on the, dwell in the house of the Lord, gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. This is a picture of worship. Uh, in verse 6, he says, uh, and I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. The Bible tells us that God inhabits the praises of his people. That actually comes from Psalm 22, verse 3. It says, God is enthroned on the praises of his people. That, that God has set, has set it up. That, that when we use our voices and our lungs and our minds to lift them up, to praise him, uh, that there is a special manifestation of God's presence and power in that place. You were created for worship. You're like, well, I, I don't really like worship. Well, you're going to hate heaven. I don't like it when it's all repetitive and says the same. Again, you're going to hate heaven because the soundtrack of the universe from, from before time, the angels are singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And, and they are loving it. They are loving it. You say, well, I, I'm just not that way. And, and I don't want to be legalistic in any way, shape, or form. We have different temperaments. Our, our heart worship and our head worship, that, that looks different for all of us. But, but what I've found sometimes, and I know this because this is me, I've found sometimes those of us that are like, no, I'm just kind of stoic in worship. We, we can go to a space, full a, fill a stadium, lose our voices in praise and adulation as we cheer on what a 20-year-old does with a ball in a kid's game. You're like, well, I'm not just really that into worship. Well, you really haven't understood that, that, that God has created you. And God isn't asking us to worship for his sake. This is what C.S. Lewis discovered. He said before he became a Christian, he thought uh, God asking for praise, praise, praise sounded like an old lady begging for compliments. So it wasn't until he became a Christian that he realized God inviting us to praise him is not for his sake, but ours. We, we were made to worship. We were made to have our hearts uh, full of the passion and love and joy of God when we lift our voices to God. So passionate, fervent worship, uh, it, it positions us to receive the manifest presence of God. Number four, uh, we, we choose to obey him Diligently, Look what he says in verse 11. Teach me your way, O Lord. Lead me on a level path because of my enemies. So, so David is asking, Lord, Lord, I want to know what your will is and I want to follow it. I want to walk on a level path in your will. Like you want to repel the manifest presence of God, just be indifferent to God, be rebellious to God, be, be, uh, choose your own way. Uh, but, but David is, you hear his heart. He wants God's presence 
So we choose to obey him diligently. Psalm 41, 12 says, As for me, you uphold me in my integrity. That's obedience to God. And you set me in your presence forever. Again, God is omnipresence. He's saying, in my uh, obedience to you, you set me in your special presence. Psalm 51, verse 10 and 12. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Again, his special presence. Restore to me the joy of my salvation. Sustain me with a willing spirit. When we treasure Jesus, that will always translate into obeying Jesus. When we treasure Jesus, it translates into obedience of Jesus. Uh, Peter, in his sermon in the book of Acts, says this, uh, chapter 3, verse 19. Repent, therefore, turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. That times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Now, I I haven't met anyone that's like, you know what I don't need? Some refreshment. I, I, yeah, I'm good. I'm kind of full on the refreshment. And so, no, he said, look, when, when you repent, when, when you, uh, repenting is just simply turning from your rebellion to God and, and lining your life up with his will and his ways. Uh, God says that his presence come to refresh you and restore you. And so it is for our joy that we choose to obey him diligently. Finally, uh, number five, choose to prepare for his presence expectantly. Expect God to show up. Expect God to meet you, to reveal himself. Look at verse 13 and 14. He says, I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. He says, wait for the Lord. Be strong. Let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. And when he says, wait for the Lord, this isn't like us at the DMV, right? Like waiting for our number so we're all on our phone just trying to pass the time. No, this is, this is an expectation. This is a longing. This is, this is a pleading. God, I, I need your presence. I need your your. Your, your love to be felt. I need your wisdom to be understood. I, I need you. And so I'm waiting. I'm longing. I'm anticipating. I'm eager for God to show up. You know, I think this one, maybe more than anything, is, is something that we could grow in individually and as a church. Just think about this for a moment. God says in his word, and what we've seen in this place, that he does some amazing things when God's people gather together, celebrate his rescue and redemption. We see people in our times together get saved. This is crazy. Ephesians chapter 2, 1, that they were dead in their sins and transgressions when they walked through those doors and in the proclamation and hearing the people of God lift praise in the proclamation of the gospel, in the coming to the table, something happens in their mind. The Holy Spirit illumines their heart, opens their eyes, and they get saved. Marriages are restored when we gather together. People are healed when the people of God come together together. Like, that's just the tip of the iceberg. Like, God inhabits the praises of his people. So why? Why would there be so little expectation and so little preparation 
for God to show up. Well, why aren't we, why aren't we getting here early? Well, why aren't there some people that come when, when we set up at eight and just pray over every chair and, and know that there's going to be image bearers here? And God, they need your presence. They need your power. They need your, your, your filling this room in this moment. Why is there no expectation for God to show up? And maybe we don't see God show up that much because we haven't positioned ourselves in this way because there's no anticipation. And so I would just ask, even through the week, would you prepare yourself? Like, would there be a longing, God, I'm going to gather with the redeemed, rescued people of, of, of God that have been bought by your blood and brought into your kingdom. God, uh, prepare my heart for that. Let there be an eagerness in my soul because we need your presence. Now, finally, in this psalm, David has this tremendous confidence. I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord. You know, other times in the Bible, when the special manifest presence of God is revealed, we don't see such confidence. Isaiah goes in and he's like, whoa, is me. He's like, I'm undone. Jeremiah, same thing. Moses, when God's presence shows up, he's like, oh, no. And so why, why does David, even Peter, when Jesus does a miracle, Peter's like, get away from me. I'm a sinful man. Like, like he gets this, this picture of the special presence of God. Peter can't, can't grasp it. But David is like, I, and I am sure of this. <laughs> I know I'm going to dwell. I shall look upon the goodness of God. Now, how, how can he be that way? And my answer is, I have no idea. <laughs> like, like, usually the pe- preacher, teacher should know these things. I, I don't know how he has such confidence, but I do know one thing. Whatever confidence he had, we have more. He says, I, I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord. We're on the other side of the cross. We can look upon the goodness of the Lord. And we can confidently go because we know that our righteousness, and and you have to be righteous to look upon the goodness of God. You have to be perfect to to go into the presence of God. We can look at what Jesus did on the cross and say, man, I have his righteousness. I I have his perfection. And so I'm going to go look upon the goodness of God. Everything your heart longs for is found in Jesus. Jesus was abandoned and forsaken so that you could be accepted and adopted. Jesus left his throne in glory. He was impoverished so that you could inherit the riches of heaven. Jesus, who had no sin, took on our sin so that we would not have sin and only have his righteousness. Well, you and I need both. Above all else is his presence and power to be seen and savored in our lives. And to that end, let me pray for us as we come to this table. Father, thank you for your word to us this morning. Thank you for your grace and your mercy. Lord, stir in us what you stirred in David, a longing, a desire for your presence in our lives. And Lord, we believe even now we will look upon the goodness of God. And if it's your will, Lord, you will pour out your spirit in this place and you will begin to uh, transform us and you will begin to transform this city and this nation and this world, not for our glory, but for your glory. So we ask this in Jesus' name, amen.